0: Again, we're we're on time, so we can get started. Uh, it's it's great to have uh, Brianna and Victor here. Uh, they work at GitHub. They are both staff engineers there, and they work on the authorization team. And we're going to be talking about authorization at GitHub, and specifically, it's internals. But before we kind of like go down the the rabbit hole, I, I want to talk uh, to both of you and kind of like learn a bit about your path. So maybe Brianna first, then, then Victor. Uh, how did you uh, get over to, to GitHub? What have you been doing there? And, and what are you working on today?
1: Great, yeah, Um really excited to be here. Um, I've been at GitHub for a little over five years. Um, I came over, I was working for uh, a small uh, startup-like company, but we were owned by Aetna Healthcare, so we had the startup culture, but not the stress of raising funding, (laughs) which was nice. Um, But I, I've been on the authorization team at GitHub for uh, about three years. Uh, Before that, I was working on doing some performance and scalability and data modeling work for uh, GitHub's main Rails app. Uh, And I'm, I'm in Boston, Mass., Uh, east coast of the US and um, I live here with my husband and my dog and uh, I'm also active for the Women Who Code Boston um, chapter Uh, so you can find us on Meetup if you're a local and yeah great to be here.
0: It's it's great to have you here as well and and thanks for for your intro. Uh, Victor do you want to kind of like share a bit about your background?
2: Sure, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks for having us. It's really cool to be here. Um, yeah, I was uh, born in the Canary Islands, Spain, and I've been doing software engineering for over 13 years. I joined GitHub in 2018. And uh, yeah, since the get-go, I was uh, uh, doing uh, identity and access management, You know the different uh, iterations of the team. Today, I'm on the first team. And yeah, I'm based in Berlin uh, with my family, my wife, and my, my kid. Dog and cat, and uh, my free time I like to to hit the drums with my hardcore band and do some music production, and um, I like to play video games. And yeah, I'm also really excited to be here.
0: Excellent, thank you. Yeah, we, we were chatting with uh, with Brianna uh, before we started about like you know, GitHub continuing to have that uh, remote-first culture as, as it continued to grow. Right, like, I remember kind of like over the. the First few years at Otsito, GitHub was kind of like a big reference in, in the remote first aspect, and, and we followed a little of what you did to kind of like model how we were thinking about the company. So let's let's get into like the topic of, of today's uh, chat, which is like authorization at GitHub. Uh, the way I, I usually like to, to start these conversations, we're we're talking about a product and, and it's great uh, that that you've been at, at GitHub for like a few years now. is is to give some context about the evolution of the product before we getting into the internals. Uh, Can you share a bit about the evolution of authorization at GitHub and and how that has changed over time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I, I think the authorization at GitHub has evolved in line with the product itself, like you said. So if you think about GitHub from, say, 10, 12 years ago, it was really basic and simple compared to what GitHub looks like today. So back in the day, it was just users who were trying to collaborate on code together. Uh, and that was really it. Um, and the, those users,
0: Hey, uh, Brianna, are are you still there? Uh, oh. I, I'm hearing your audio, but it's a bit choppy. I'm not sure, Victor, if you're hearing the same thing, or it's just me.
2: Yeah, I think I lost Brianna as well.
0: Okay, let's let's wait for, for a few seconds to see if, if she comes back. Let's see. Uh, I don't know if she knows that we lost her, though. Hey,
2: I think I heard something. Brianna, you there?
1: Mm.
0: Okay, I think she's back. Brianna, can you hear us? Can you hear me? Yep, we can. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Um, no, don't worry.
1: Okay, let me try to pick up right where I left off. Um, so, yeah, I think I was saying that uh, GitHub, the authorization at GitHub it kind of aligns with the evolution of GitHub the product. So, GitHub back in the day was really basic Uh, just users collaborating on code. Uh, So the authorization model followed that really simple model uh, where we were just needing to store um, relationships between users and the repos that they were working on. So we used a really simple, almost like access control list model between users and repos. And that was the extent of it because that was all we really needed. Um, But as, you know, as time went on, we added more features, and uh, we added organizations, in particular, in GitHub to GitHub in 2010. So with that, we had to update the authorization model to support organizations, which also include teams within them. So we had a way to more easily map organizational structures to GitHub and reflect that in in our access control management. Uh, so we enabled permission assignment for those user groups, and that was added into the model. So that was a big That was a big deal back in 2010 when orgs were introduced and it wasn't just individual humans working individually anymore. Um, So outside of users, we also evolved in terms of the product. Uh, So going beyond just repos and code, we added features like issues, pull requests, pull request reviews, projects, GitHub apps. I know it's hard to think about this, but these things didn't ship with the original version of GitHub. (laughs) So, you know, as we added all of those different features, uh, we had to kind of adjust our model, or at least like the semantics of the model and the value of of the data that we were storing to support these different types of resources and the different groups of users that would have access to these resources. Um, But we still kind of stuck with, A simple model, right? It was just storing, you know, ACLs essentially for different types of resources and different actor types, being like individual users, groups of users, teams, orgs, whatever. Um, So yeah, I think those were some big milestones for us. Uh, We have started, although we've moved beyond just users and repos. our, Our Um, access control model still has repo permissions at the core of it. Um, So we still rely really heavily on like repo, read, write, and admin as our core roles at GitHub. But we have started to try to um, add some new roles and also break apart the permissions that are, that were or continue to be implicit within those roles and enable like a more fine grained, permissions model as an option uh, going forward. So this is a, I mean, I I listened to the part of your talk with the Slack folks, and I feel like they're doing something really similar where trying to migrate from a coarse-grained permission system to a more fine-grained permission system to meet customer needs and make things more configurable and dynamic and have more options for our customers, but also be able to build things more fluidly internally in terms of new features and updating existing features. Um so yeah, we're we're still in that process. Um and so I think the biggest changes have been additions in terms of features, different resource types that we're supporting, and then also adding different kind of kinds of users and organizations and enterprises that are on GitHub and being able to support all of that.
0: That's that's great. That's that's a pretty interesting recap. And I and I like how you mix the the time aspect of things and, and like GitHub's product evolution with like the authorization systems evolution and, and feature set. So, kind of like uh, a quick recap would be you, know, you, you started with the, the collaboration features, like who can uh, individual users that can read, write, maybe be admins of repositories. And then uh, that was kind of like a, an ACL or access control list model. This user can do this thing on this repository, kind of like a triple sort of thing, I guess. And then that that started kind of like evolving towards what we now have, which is you have the notion of an organization, you have the notion of like a group of users, but, but it's still an ACL, correct? It's still an access control list, just that you have kind of like a group and then members of that group kind of like get permissions from that group's ACL?
1: That's right, yeah. And then it's just like we still have repo as like our core subject type that we're granting access to, but we also have all of these other... Resource types that we like can create ACLs for, and um, like even our access levels have become more varied than just read, write, and admin. So that's kind of touching yes. on the fine grain, the more fine grained piece of it that we're aiming for now.
0: Right, like there's, I think there are roles like maintainer and, and triager that are, like, are kind of in the middle, and then that's there's The right. coupling, yeah, and there's a decoupling between like the role, like the reader, the triager, the maintainer, and, and its permissions, right, and and I, internally, I guess you start thinking more about like, does the user have this permission rather than does the user have this role, which implicitly means this permission.
1: Correct. Yeah. And like, obviously, the customer sees like read, triage, write, maintainer, admin. We like having more fine-grained permissions under the hood enables us to build permissioning for new features and you know update the permissioning for existing features way more easily if everything's broken out into fine-grained actions.
0: I see, that, that makes sense, and, and this this is a good kind of leeway into to my next question, which is, so you have both the, the collaboration features that are authorization-related, that you also have, I guess, more like the, the enterprise features, the compliance requirements, the notion for the projects, teams, how do you do? Do you deal with new features in terms of like these two things? Uh, do you work together with teams that are building the features? What does that evolution look like for new project, uh, for new products, or new features within GitHub?
2: Yeah, I can talk about this. Um, you can see this as a spectrum. One, on one hand, we have the collaboration, open source. Which is at the heart of a product, and at the at the other end is the enterprise, which is also definitely an important group that has very advanced needs uh, of the Azure platform. And so, we really want to meet them, whatever they are in their in their life cycle. So, from an application perspective, this means you know, like you can go from the simplest case like a user-owned repository, you know, to enterprises with multiple organizations, you know, conditional access policies very complex hierarchies synced using Skim uh, external collaboration. Um, you know, you know, you can have your you know behind doors your 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 activity with private repositories, but then you, you can have your, your uh, as your organization uh, your thriving open source community, and, but also you know within an enterprise there could be multiple organizations collaborating with it well, within them and uh, via inner sourcing and uh, uh, using internal this internal visibility. So yeah, I guess you know this like this kind of mature enterprises pushes our boundaries in terms of the authorization platform, and yeah, with respect to the teams and the, and how we work with them, like you know the what we want to provide them the internal teams as a platform they can they can kind of like self serve and take these building blocks to create their their features. So they're they're really the owners of defining what the business logic um, for the individual features looks like. We're really creating this. You know, this foundation for them to be able to do that in a secure, scalable, and you know, productive way.
0: That's, that's great. I, I think that, that makes sense. And, and we actually had a chat with some folks from Mercado Libre last week, and, and they also kind of like work on the authorization platform. So it's not necessarily kind of like a team implementing authorization for a feature, but rather like building blocks for, for other teams. Uh, do you have different product managers for the different types of features? How do you know what to build?
2: Yeah, um, we um, we work closely with um, uh, internal teams, um, and they basically come with their, their requirements. We interview them to kind of understand how do we want to evolve uh, the platform, the existing platform, in order to meet their demands and their needs. And yeah, at, at the feature level, you know, they will have the individual like product managers uh, focusing on specific feature, trying to validate hypotheses and whether something works or not. We work, you know, with our fantastic uh, product manager Jared. Shout out to Jared, awesome human being. Um, we work with uh, with them. We collaborate. We gather insight from internal internal customers. but we, we also collaborate or we listen to, you know, uh, enterprises to understand, you know, what are the limits of the offering platform. Um, so uh, we are in. We, we work both uh, product teams as internal customers, but we we'll also listen to. You know, to our end customers, to understand what are the limits of our platform.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. I, like that, uh, thinking of other teams as as internal customers is again, it's more and more of a trend. But it's always a a big important challenge for for platform teams. So it's it's great that you kind of like that's that's how you phrase the answer and also kind of like how you started to to think about that. Um, before we we dive deep into kind of like the internals and the architecture. Can we give the the audience an idea of like the, the scale of GitHub? Uh, because it's like all of us are kind of like familiar with the UI because we've used it. But like, how, how many uh, users are there approximately? Right, and how many repos and how many organizations? This is kind of like to to just give some notions of the scale that you all are handling.
1: Yes. Um, so we grabbed some numbers for you. Uh, right now, we have around sixty five million over sixty five million developers on GitHub. Uh, To give you a sense of activity based on that, they contributed 2.2 billion contributions in the last 12 months on GitHub. Wow. Yeah. Um, We have over 3 million organizations. uh, 200 million repos, which was a big milestone for us that we recently hit. Uh, Congrats. Yeah, thanks. Um, so these these are some big numbers. I would say I, I was curious about what does this translate to in terms of like requests that we handle. Um, and luckily, our CEO Nat was actually tweeting about this a couple of weeks ago. So um, <laughs> I got some info from Nat's tweets. Um, so it, it, it sounds like we are handling like fifty five thousand requests per second uh, at peak for our API. Um, web, I actually had to pull this number, but it's around 20,000 requests per second um, at peak, and then for Git, uh, what I could gather was about 2 billion Git operations per day. Ah, uh, so hopefully that gives you a sense of our scale. Uh, and in my opinion, that's a lot. That's pretty big.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, and again, like, uh, I know. Uh, again, uh, at least I have this feeling at OCSIO, which is like i know how the system works and i know how the system needs to improve but like at least hearing these numbers out loud like at least i would feel proud of being able to kind of have a system in production that's handling that load consistently
1: absolutely yeah
0: um what what percentage approximately of of those requests involve authorization right is it none of them, is it all of them, is it 90%? Because like this is kind of like a big thing, right? Authorization is usually in the critical path for for a lot of what you do. Yeah.
1: Um, I would say it's, if I had to summarize it, I would say it's all of them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And there are some, so you're exactly right. Like authorization is in the critical path. So like you make a request to GitHub to API.com, like we have to know who you are, which is, what uh, more so? What I would consider authentication, but then after that, we have to determine what you can access. Um, so, yeah, I would say every request to, to GitHub has to consider authorization. There are some like edge case exceptions, right, for things like marketing pages where we're not showing anything that needs to be authorized. It's just publicly available. Uh, we have certain endpoints for like metadata, like static pages, and then we do we can cache some public content at the edge. Uh, So those are the exceptions, but the rule is we authorize every request.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense, and and kind of like what what I expect uh, from from what I've seen in in the post. Um, How does the the architecture work? Maybe, Maybe we can dig into a use case, like what happens when I add a person as a writer to a repository and then, what happens when they try to access that repository and, and maybe perform a right action? Can you walk us through that use case or that uh, user story?
2: I can talk about this. Um, I think, uh, in a nutshell, an authorization decision at GitHub is composed of you know access control policies and then you know data coming from multiple sources. Um, the this data comes fundamentally from I, our ACL ACL access control list table uh, that lives in MySQL. Uh, so, for instance, when you grant you know read, write, or admin permission over a repository to a user, you know that translates into an ACL. You know, making a user a member of an organization is another example. Um, team membership and team grants of a repository as well. So that would be the uh, kind of like. Uh, like the permission side of things, but there, there's also uh, another set of data that we consider relevant for an authorization decision. And so we don't have a better name for it, so we call it authorization relevant data because it doesn't have the shape of an ACL. Um, and so you know these access control policies uh, might take you know apart uh, aside from the ACL, they take other other sources of data and sets of data to compute an authorization decision, and it's necessary. Um, so um, you know this data is usually owned by the uh, various feature teams that build the uh, the feature so one example is the repository visibility. Repository visibility lives you know close to the modeling of the repository entity in in, in github and you know it would it would be impossible for us to define uh, an ACL. Uh, to say every user, every every user, we said sixty-five million users, right? Every, each one of those sixty-five million users has an an ACL entry with every single um, public repository on GitHub. And so this is just one example of like the kind of data that also is relevant for officing decisions. Um, and so yeah, in terms of like how the request, like the request works uh, today, the Ruby monolith still Drives most of the authorization decisions. Um, we've encoded these, uh, you know, policies as you know, a, a series of like, uh, you know, Ruby code that handles the most of the coarse grain uh, access controls in the monolith. And the repository continues to give the full level of granularity for most of the operations. And this is still true, you know, across the three well known interfaces that would be Web, uh, Git, and API. Um, so but like we also you know we we're, we're moving also towards this world where we are you know having more fine grain controls we want to also revamp we we've been working on revamping the infos- the authorization platform and we're incrementally moving to a new authorization authorization service with the goals of centralizing um, all the authorization logic um, you know providing more flexibility to our internal platform uh, to our sorry internal customers um, also very important uh, here is to expose this efficient logic to the service architecture, to other microservices at like GitHub. And, you know, in general, just to define this kind of uh, lingua franca to avoid reinventing, to, to, to make sure that uh, teams don't have the reinvent wheel and end up with uh, bespoke solutions. Um, so, yeah, depending on, like, you know, how it's up to the individual feature teams to define how that works. Um, you know, how, like, whether they want to choose and go with, like, the old-school course-claim permissions and reuse what's in place for a long time, or they want to uh, take advantage of the more uh, advanced functionality that we provide as part of the platform. Um, and so it's, depending depending on the individual features, in, the request path might look, like, different. It might end up just in the monolith and be handled by the Ruby code, or it might trigger an RPC call to the authorization service that would you know, uh, match a series of policies and execute, evaluate a series of uh, rules in those policies and come back with a authorization decision. Um, and yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I, I see that makes sense. It's, a, it's an evolutionary architecture like most successful systems have kind of like n- nothing is in a complete finished state. It's mostly in flux.
2: Yeah, I think it has evolved, as Brianna said, with the product and, you know, as, as the need arise, um, we need to evolve the system to meet our customers. And so yeah, it's in this you know, intermediary step where we're moving from. And I, I expect it's going, to, it's going to be around for a while, and it will continue to evolve, like we will uh, discover new use cases that we didn't anticipate, that's how it works. Uh, something I didn't mention is like the, the persistence side of things. Uh, we started with a monolithic uh, database for everything at GitHub, and then as we started to hit the limits of vertical scaling of a, a single primary, um, we went for uh, for functional partitioning of that database. So today we have lots of uh, different MySQL clusters uh, that serve functionality uh, from different bounded contexts. We refer to those as uh, schema domains um and the acl table that i referred to uh early on uh it, it's living very comfortably in its own database cluster with an headroom to support today's load um we um we considered the tests uh uh not to scale on writes, uh but you know back in the day uh but uh, at that point the operational maturity wasn't ready uh and so as such we yeah we basically optimize the ACL model for, for writes, so with a very heavily normalized uh, model, so that basically we just rely on scaling on reads, which is by basically uh, you know adding new MySQL replicas to the cluster. Um, and yeah, but Vitesse is uh, seeing a lot of adoption these days at GitHub, and it's, it's uh, already in production for some critical parts of the site. And it is definitely a key part of some of the explorations we are doing to continue to evolve the authorization platform.
0: I see that makes sense. So my, my, my take on this is like the, the, there seems to be kind of like two, two big pieces of this. One of them is you are coming from a place where the monolith has this sort of like chain of responsibility pattern that goes read some data from the database. This data might be ACLs from the ACL functional MySQL. But it might also be things uh, that it needs to make a decision like is this repo public so kind of like a mix of uh acl checks and, and attribute based control and then you're moving towards kind of like the authorization service which might have similar logic but you're trying to kind of like decouple that into a separate service and have uh, the notion of like these policies is, is that accurate
2: yeah that's exactly right i think you know like um internal developers Uh, They made use of, like, the ACL uh, for permissioning, but also then they had sprinkled all these different checks uh, in the code base, um, also for, like, these things that were not necessarily a, uh, you know, a a permission. Um, And so what we want to do, as I mentioned earlier, like, the goal was to centralize all the different authorization checks so that there was just one single canonical place for each feature to define what the authorization looked like and define this kind of, like, physical boundaries, because it's very easy to cross boundaries within the monolith and start like joining against tables. And we've been putting measures in place, you know, also to make sure that, you know, there's a boundary for the ACL table um, and for the all I guess, all school uh, coarse grained uh, functional functions. Um, and so the, the moving to a microservice was really compelling for us because it introduced this kind of like physical boundary that uh, wouldn't allow this this kind of like anti patterns that we saw um, in when we were just running a monolith. Uh, today, there's a lot of microservices at GitHub. So, we are definitely chipping away more and more functionality into microservices.
0: I see. I, I, that, that makes sense. So, you mentioned kind of like the, the goal is to go towards this authorization service architecture, centralizing authorization decisions. And and I, something that you mentioned a couple of times was like this, kind of like decoupling and, and like creating a boundary. Now, a lot of those things make sense to me. And I'm, I'm thinking about this. We, we've talked a bit before, but maybe for the audience, what are the things that you're hoping to either prevent or or get us a benefit from having that separate boundary, that separate centralized service?
2: Brianna, you want to talk about this?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, I think there are trade-offs that come with putting authorization in a centralized service that's outside of the monolith. Like the reality is that like most of our core operations are, can happen with requests to the monolith and not in our database. And that's about it, right? Like we don't, we have services, but we are not by any means like fully a microservice, like service oriented architecture. We, We have a legacy old like monolith that we are starting to break out specific functionality, but we're, super intentional about what we break out. And it is few and far between that we like build outside of it. Um, so that said, I think the, 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 the big advantages of, of creating an authorization service outside the monolith is um, scalability. Like we can scale that service independently um, from, from mon- the monolith it's developer productivity, right? Like the monolith it has, thousands literally thousands of developers working inside that code base every single day <laughs> so being able to iterate and deploy and and work separately from that enables us to work faster and more efficiently um, I think from a performance perspective like we are still querying the the data the same database as we would be querying from within the monolith uh, but Uh, We can use, you know, our our authorization service is built in Go, so we have the niceties that that provides in terms of a performance perspective, as opposed to Ruby. Um, I think the another really compelling reason to build outside the monolith for the authorization service is that, like, although we don't have lots and lots of services, we do have more services cropping up every day, so we need to have a way for those services to get this information and a lot of those services do not want to be coupled to the monolith for the same reasons that we don't want to be either, like, um, namely um, performance and scalability, uh, reliability, things like that. So, yeah, I think those were the reasons that we we made this choice and uh, I think we stand by them.
0: Great. Uh, Go ahead, Victor, sorry.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think the coupling the failure domain is also really a strong, compelling reason here, right? We have services that start to expose interfaces to to the outside world, like packages. And so like they they want to minimize the contact surface with the monolith and being able to rely on you know on authorization service and authentication service and being able to have that decoupled failure domain and being able to continue to be up if something is up with the monolith is a really strong component reason for many internal teams.
0: Yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I, I really like how you both kind of like are able to almost enumerate, as if they were bullets, the, the benefits. And, and it's, it's good to go back from that. This is the, the tactical way in which we decided to kind of like go get those benefits, uh, but make it clear that a lot of these things are about the business, right? Like, scaling independently probably is making you save money and also improving your reliability, the productivity aspect. All of those things are important beyond the technology of the, the service itself.
2: It also comes with its challenges, for sure. Um, you know, like you sometimes have to uh, pave the path to how things work uh, because no one else has done it before you uh, at the company. Um, but in general sense, I think it's a net positive for us, for sure. Um, there are things also, like as I mean, as you mentioned, developer productivity. Like we don't have to be subject to the kind of like the point deploy queues of the monolith, and we can, you know. Deploy faster outside of the monolith because we don't have a long queue of folks that also want to do the same thing in front of us.
0: Yeah uh, we, we go through through similar things at zero as well where we also are kind of like pulling different parts of the original codebase out over time, but you still have that natural kind of like contention both on, on deploys and also kind of like pull request merges and things so it, it makes sense from from that perspective as well. Um, one of the things uh, I'm wondering about this: like, a lot of the permissions that, that GitHub, the product, has seem to be, and this is kind of like my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong. About like the product, right? So, for example, the notion of an issue does not exist in Git, but it seems that there are some permissions that are Git-specific, like the ability to create a tag, for example. Um, how do you deal if you do with Git-specific permissions where? the protocol itself might not have a plug for authorization, but you still want to allow your users, your customers to to have authorization for those features.
1: I can take this. Um, so we don't have, we like the, the Git operations that you'll do to interact with GitHub are still mapped to repo, read, write, and admin. So it's actually the, the most simple, <laughs> Um, like mapping because if you're trying to pull a repo, you can just that just maps to repo read, and then pushing um, comes with repo write, and that and we consult that data, that permissions data, when those operations take place. for um, there are like some some nuance in terms of like get actions that you can take, like you, like creating a tag operation, like branch protection rules. Um, these kind of follow the same uh, breakdown that we're trying to do. So we, we may have specific fine-grained permissions for these um, that map to, like, a role or not. And then we also, uh, under the hood, they just might be, like, implicit in terms of an ACL that we already have, like, implicit in repo, read, writer admin, implicit in, uh, like, org member or admin. So, yeah, it, I would say, like, these operations kind of follow the same patterns that we have already in place for all of the other access control that we do on GitHub. Um, So yeah, like I think this all goes back to like breaking things out into more fine-grained. And like, we obviously would like to enable more fine-grained permissions and be able to put those into different roles and make everything more configurable and more uh, customizable for our customers. And we are like in the process of doing that, but everything that we've already described kind of uh, covers those actions as
0: well. Okay, I think that that makes sense. Um, you, you mentioned the word kind of like more granular permissions. Can you maybe provide an example of how you at GitHub think about granularity? And also, what, what are the challenges of having to support a granular system over a, I guess, more coarse grained one?
1: Yeah, um, I think. In terms of what level of granularity do we do we think about? Um, I I think we still ask ourselves that question a lot. Um, like what what is the right level of granularity that we're aiming for? Um, ultimately, our ideal world is that this is up to the feature teams that own the features that are requiring these permissions, right? Um, so like recently we had an example. Like new GitHub discussions. Like, this is a brand new feature that didn't really exist on GitHub before. So, that team had the ability to go and write the rules around discussion authorization, right? Like, do they want to fully rely on repo, read, write, and admin, or do they want to make things more uh, flexible for their customers in terms of? Uh, managing discussions and interacting on discussions and also like discussions aren't necessarily just tied to a repo. I don't think uh, I could be wrong about that. Um, but like there are resources now that exist that aren't just like issues and labels, pull requests, those things are all repo centric, but there are projects and packages and, and resources that don't come off of a repo. So in those cases, I think turning towards, fine-grained permissions is is a good option. And then it's up to the feature teams and the product managers and the business to determine like what do we want to allow in terms of granularity? Like, do we want uh fine-grained permissions that's just uh, manage discussion and that would handle all of the settings, all of the security aspects of discussion administration or do we want to go to the level of granularity of delete discussion, uh, block discussion participant you know like you can go super granular and you can go less granular and it's ultimately it's up to the feature teams to make that decision Uh, but yeah so that's just an example of one question that we grapple with Um, I think we think about that in terms of a product but we also think about that in terms of scale (laughs) right so if we enable any feature to have unlimited fine-grained permissions what's that going to do to our database Uh, is that okay and like so it's a balancing act of like what makes sense for the product and what makes sense for us in terms of engineering and scalability. um and other, other questions i think this is the big one um how do we evangelize a large engineering organization like github to move to this like fine-grained permissions model and kind of break down these coarse-grained permissions like within these coarse-grained permissions there are so many implicit actions that you can take and realistically like we as a singular authorization team of less than 10 people cannot go through and break down break out everything right so this has to be a large effort and so you know right now we work with teams that come to us or we reach out to teams and say hey like it's maybe it's a good idea to move to this new model here are the benefits what do you think what are your needs and that's a conversation that we have but um yeah, like we're always thinking about what what's the next right thing to do in terms of pushing this model forward and, and having it be adopted successfully by all of these internal teams at GitHub?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um how how does that like interaction work? Let's say I'm a feature team and I say, hey, these are the permissions I need. Is that a self-service internal thing where they can just go and dynamically create those and then they will be available to query and for policies? Is there a discussion that happens with you on the team? How does it work?
2: Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. I think you know we start with like this sets of uh, building blocks that we provide to to internal teams. Uh, the platform we have frameworks, we have libraries, and we have you know APIs. You know, uh, as Brianna said. Teams define the authorization logic for the features, you know, and they're powered by, by our platform. So they they start by defining, you know, what should the authorization model for our feature look like. Um yeah, Brianna mentioned like the, the GitHub discussions example, you know, like we provide them like ways to define permissions when they need, ways to grant permissions, um, and mechanisms to like define the logic and evaluate it. And so, for instance, um, they might decide to go, you know, hey, I'm perfectly fine living with a, a traditional coarse grain model, and they can decide to use the, the functions that we provide to determine whether they have the access control list, whether they are read, write, or admin, there are a set of reusable, uh, functions in the monitor and if that works for them great if they want more advanced they have more advanced needs they, they might want to define perhaps a fine grained permission. Um, we define fine grained permissions in a declarative way and um, developers might decide you know whether they want to assign this to you know uh, a base role you know this base roles are the course grain roles that we all know, uh, and know, read, write, on admin. Uh, but they also might decide to uh, use those fine grain permissions to assign them directly to to users. Um, and so we have a scenario where, like, a user might be um, uh, having a I don't know, a write uh, on a repository, but also they're being assigned package manager at the organization level with a via a fine grain permission. So when they're happy with kind of like the modeling of their final permissions, then they start defining the, the policies, which include the rules. And they also do this declaratively. Um, and they register their, their policy uh, within, with our service, right? And so um, policies evaluate any arbitrary uh, data. Uh, we follow the accident-based access control. I guess um, I call it architectural style. I don't know what will be the right name for it. Um, but, yeah, basically, you know, any pair uh, key values can be passed to the authorization service and they might be, uh, or also be treated by the service itself uh, to the authorization decisions. And so, yeah, the policy will con- contain all these different business rules to evaluate whether they are allowed or denied to perform a certain operations. So when the policies are ready, they're deployed and they're available as part of the service. Then it's time to uh, cons- uh, perform the checks via the APIs that we provide. We expose a for API, and uh, to consume it, you you might you might want to use one of our libraries, uh, Go or Ruby libraries that we officially support to uh, talk to our APIs. Or you know if you're uh, building a language that is not Go or Ruby, you can always talk. Uh, using JSON, because Twerp supports also JSON uh, content. Um, and yeah, the, the API call looks with a very simple, can this actor perform this operation over this resource? We think we think in terms of operations over resources. We don't think in terms of, like, does this user have this role? And this is fundamental to go to a, a fine-grained model. Um,
0: yeah, that, so, that an sounds, experiment. oh, sorry. That, that sounds very similar to, like, again, ACL checks, but also kind of, like, the, the Sansibata model that is growing in, in popularity, right? Can this user perform or has this relation to, to this object?
2: Exactly. We have examples like, you know, uh, can this user close this issue, you know, which is actually fine-grained a permission under the hood, or can this user view notifications, you know? And so, yeah, we, we try to steer internal developers to... To start to think more in terms of operations in less in terms of like can this user, this user can do this because they have this role. Um, right. We you wanna we wanna make sure that we remove roles from the equation, more of the roles are composed of permissions.
0: Right. Like the code becomes instead of having a comment that says admins can delete repositories, and then if this user is an admin, then delete the repository, it's just if this user can delete repositories, then go delete the repository more, a bit more explicit, so to speak.
2: Exactly, and then at the, at the product level, you know, uh, product makes a decision whether they want to, you know, I'm going to assign this FGP to add, to the admin role, or to the, and or the admin, uh, the, sorry, the right role. So that's, uh, that's something that's definitely possible.
0: Makes sense. Um, you, you mentioned policies what's the policy runtime is that something you built is that an open source technology
2: yeah we we started uh, an MD, we started investigating about like now how did we want to provide a flexible model for our internal customers we, they, they always came with this requirement like yeah we, we want to be able to model anything because like you know you could define any kind of new feature on top of the GitHub business domain. And we even had requests from uh, infrastructure. Like I want to also be able to you know, plot have an API that supports software system uh, with, within my Kubernetes clusters and things like that. And so, you know, we look at it and, you know, I think Matt Todd, I think Matt Todd is online also in the call and, you know, Matt Todd and I, Brianna and James, shout out to James. Uh, we were working in 2018 on defining what this could look like. And we came up with, hey, this, ABAC, uh pattern looks very interesting, I, it, could, it could work for this scenario. So we, we built an MVP within the, the monolith. We, we built an MVP of the authorization service in the monolith, and that came with a policy language, which is, you know, serialized as JSON, and uh, a parser and interpreter. Um, and so, yeah, within within a couple of months, we had something working, and we, we shipped it with a uh, we supported some functionality, um, and so once we validated our hypothesis, this this seems to work. This seems to be you know powerful enough. Then then we moved outside and we we rebuilt it, everything on, on uh, with the Go with Go basically, F- following the same fundamentals. Okay, so yeah, fair. the like developers will basically uh, define these these policies They're just JSON files, and they they will register them within the 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 service. And then when requests come, basically the the engine will uh, on runtime decide you know match policies like what given the attributes that you're passing me, the context that the environment and the context that you're giving me, like what are the policies that make sense in this context? And so the you know the the, the engine will look uh, at you know all the policies we have, and will try to match what are the policies that make sense for that request. And once the policies are matched, then it, it, it goes into the evaluation uh, phase, where basically it starts to evaluate the different rules that it has, and it comes back with an allow or deny. We also have other kinds of responses, like perhaps there was not the request you sent, Um, doesn't make sense, I don't find any policy that makes sense to what you sent, and so we return something like not applicable. Um, But also, you know, if there's an error while evaluating the policy, we might also return, you know, uh, an error too back to the the client.
0: Can you share maybe like a a use case for like how a team might create a simple policy and and how it's used? So for example, when does a team say, "I, I want to use a policy over I can just deal with the permissions directly.
2: I think I think that the like we we want to steer them to do this because we think it's the right way to go. I think you know, back in the day, we looked at all the problems we had and we concluded, hey, we centralize all the logic. we want to have everything in the same place, following the same rules, following the same language, the, the same language, the same patterns. We want to make sure that they use phone, uh, phone, uh, you know building blocks that are battle proven and that we're not reinventing the wheel and we wanna b- make sure that they don't make mistakes while building the authorization logic. And so having this kind of like lingua franca without centralized, we thought it was a, a better approach that, but we cannot, we cannot prevent today that they will go and and do things the old school way. Um, so I think that generally uh, people come to us when they are in need of the more advanced you know, functionality that the service provides, and also people are really keen to follow the recommendations because they 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 you know they trust our our judgment and they trust the that we are recommending the the best practices to do a session and so I might have write a little bit. Your question is like how how would like the developers um, come and like pr- uh, create a new policy and contribute to the service? Was that the initial right. question?
0: What, what, so let's say uh, I have a request that's wanting to like check for access first of all it's like how would a developer format a policy document we mentioned it's json but like maybe what what does a simple policy look like and yeah. then uh, as the request comes into the authorization service we talked about the authorization service decides which policies apply based on the context um, yeah. is that where is that data stored and how does it make that decision
2: yeah so the, uh, the payload of the request comes with key values, it's attributes, right? And these attributes usually come with, we, we provide the very minimum information uh, that we need to compute this. And uh, we, we, we wanna do this because, you know, we don't want to couple the client side with the, with the internals of the policy. The, the idea of one of the, you know, uh, benefits of, of ABACs that you you might be able to add or evolve new, the policies and you don't necessarily need to change uh, the client cycle right and so you provide the basic information this is this is this actor is performing this operation on this user so I will have an identifier for the user I will have an identifier for the resource that's being accessed and the type of resource that it is and then the action that it's being performed and so in the server side, you know, a policy basically, you know, it's composed of like a match clause and a rules clause. And so the match clause basically is a, I wouldn't say is a, you know, it's a full blown like imperative language, uh, well, declarative language, but you can basically do all sorts of like, is this value equals to this, uh, and equals to this or equals to this. And so based on that, you can basically look at the attributes that come on the part of the payload and say, if you're saying that the user is closing an issue then um, i'm i'm going to identify the those this those attributes and'm going to check them against my match clause and say yeah this this policy seems to uh be the right one for this request and once we've evaluated all of them you might you might end up with one or more uh, matched uh, policies you basically take the the, the policies are matched, and then you execute the rules, which are ex- exactly the same language that you use for the match clause. And so when it comes to the data retrieval, um, you might provide uh, data as part of the request, and that's what we use for the matching uh, of the policies. Uh, but then on, on the rules section, uh, we, um, we actually instruct, we tell uh, the engine. Uh, also in the we we register attributes uh, we define attributes and say, this this attribute means this, and it can be resolved this way. And this uh, uh, this is also a pluggable system, but 100% of the uh, resolution, we call this attribute resolution, uh, ends up in a SQL query to one of our clusters. And okay. so the, the engine will evaluate all these attributes. If it's not a part of the uh, request, then it will try to find if there is a resolver for it, and if there is a resolver, it executes and performs the query.
0: That, that's, that makes sense. And, and thanks for kind of like going into the details of okay, we we take some of the context of the request, we match through the policies, and based on those, we pick the ones that apply, and then we kind of like <laughs> execute them. Uh, we we also talked about like the, the MySQL database again towards the end. And one of the things we had discussed earlier is how it's like there's a dedicated functional MySQL cluster that's specific for the ACL data. It basically grows in terms of like read capacity by adding more read replicas. How how do you keep uh, growing the authorization set of features as GitHub continues to grow, both from a scalability perspective? How do you what what things do you do to kind of like keep the system reliable? How does that work on on a day to day or maybe quarter to quarter basis? If you want to go towards longer time frames,
1: um, I can chime in. Um, so yeah, like you got, you got it right. We have for our primary permissions data, our ACL data, we store that in its own cluster and we are able to scale that, um, just like expanding the number of replicas, um, Beyond that, like there is other data that author like is relevant for authorization decisions that we've talked about. Off this authorization relevant data, that data we have less control over because it's normally coupled to a feature or a, or like part of the product that isn't specific for authorization. Right, like repo visibility is owned by the repos team. Other examples are things like um, security settings or. Um, Spamminess of a of a user like these are things that we need to take into account for authorization, but we don't own that data, right? We just read it. So in that case, it's just that that data is scaled in the same way that we scale all of our data for GitHub. Um, we have an amazing MySQL team that is able to maintain our clusters in a healthy state to monitor load and let teams know when they're about to you know be at capacity or they're experiencing issues. Like, and I think as a company, our strategy has been to like shard when we need to using the tests, move things into different clusters. If there's too much and too much load in a, in a single cluster, we split things out. Um, so yeah, I, I would say like a lot of this is not specific to authorization per se, but just like, how do we scale MySQL at GitHub? And, and that's kind of the approach that we've taken um, in terms of like scale, our usage, like, our authorization service usage is still relatively low and we're able to scale that out uh as on an as needed basis and um i think we're always looking for optimizations that we can make from like the application perspectives as well so like for example during policy evaluation um we try to optimize those policies such that the attributes that are evaluated early on are the cheapest ones or the ones that are most likely to return something that would mean that we can bail out of the policy evaluation and return or pr- an approve or deny so like that's more manual less on an infrastructure level but there are definitely like application level things that we can do to make sure that we're optimizing as much as possible to make sure that authorization is fast because it is in the critical path um, so that's really important for us
0: that makes sense, and so like take, taking uh, kind of like some of, of the, the things that you're saying around like latency, there's a part of that that's like making sure that's a good uh, customer experience. I know that also GitHub has lots of clients, right? Like GitHub for Windows and for Macs. There's like a CLI. Um, what do you do to, to improve the the UX for those clients? Uh, do you do any caching at the edge? Do you do any caching in clients?
1: Yeah. Um... I can't. I can't really speak to like the architecture of those clients. Um, we have teams dedicated for that, and u- ultimately, it's up to them to, to like design those clients in the way that is the most optimal for their performance and their UX. Um, what I can say is like, though, those clients are like most of the time, the rules of any integrator also apply to those clients, so they are. At the mercy of our, or like, have the advantages of our public GitHub APIs to power them, the same as any other integrator has. Um, in terms of like caching at the edge, uh, we do cache at the edge. Uh, we all we have lots of points of presence around the world, so that we are closer to our customers and we serve content as fast as we can. Um, but yeah, again, nothing super authorization specific about that.
0: Okay, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Maybe going back to kind of like the internals, uh, again, we, we, we talked about some of like the application-level things that you can do to, to improve latency, the scalability of, of MySQL, again, not authorization-specific in terms of what was built, but yes, in terms of like how important performance and latency is for authorization. Um, what's, your, like, what's the business impact of, of latency? What happens if authorization is low at GitHub, for example?
2: Yeah, I I don't think I would add uh, anything new if I say that faster means more engagement and conversions I think that's uh, universal in, in the webs um, but yeah performance is definitely very important a uh, very important focus for for our work and you know as you said I think everybody knows that authorization is in the critical path and if it's not performant it can slow down the whole application in a more noticeable way than other parts of the system perhaps it has it's this kind of like compounding effect and so, yeah, it's definitely important, and we're always keeping an eye on like everything we have. Definitely, a really uh, in-depth uh, observability stack, and we uh, do you know various techniques to like reduce the impact on the overhead of requests to the service. So we do things like you know, uh, kind of almost like request hedging, so that we wait for a request to come. Uh, you know, we issue a request, and if it doesn't come within a certain amount of time, then you know, we issue any request. Um, another interesting technique that we do in the monolith, uh, because it has it has its own set of restrictions when we are building things in Ruby, is uh, request batching. And so we basically use promises to defer the uh, the execution of the of the of the system checks, you know, until the the last moment, essentially. And so when when the promise is resolved, then we can send all these. Uh, batched request, individual requests in one single RPC call to the server. And what is interesting about this is that we can do concurrency that we cannot do in, in the month because when the batched request hits the server, we basically found out using ghost concurrency primitives and we resolve each one of the individual uh, uh, requests uh, request in that patch uh, concurrently. And so, essentially, we can do things faster than we couldn't do uh, in the Ruby monolith. And yeah, I think an example I saw recently—I think I saw some requests to the site, seeing you know ten or thousand of uh, RPC calls to the service, and then they turned, you know, after doing some some refactoring around, we turned them into one or two batch requests. And so you you eliminate the overhead of the of the network, which is you know relevant for sure. But more importantly, you're you're able to do more things concurrently. Um, yeah, I could think also. I think Brianna mentioned you know things like you know local optimizations of the policy, you know bailing out and the evaluation of a policy as soon as, as you possibly can. We're um, also exploring in the future, you know, doing even more more, stu- more stuff concurrently, like concurrent uh, or speculative uh, policy rule execution. You know, like evaluating rules even before they actually need to be evaluated, so that we have the results when the time comes. Um, essentially, we just reduce the amount of time that we spend uh, waiting for the officing service to come back to us.
0: That that makes sense. So it seems you and, and the whole team spend a lot of time thinking about uh, performance and latency.
2: Yeah, for sure. Like it was a it was a really important thing, and I think we our SLOs these days are. Um, Mm, four, four nines of availability over the course of a day and 30 milliseconds on a P99 also over the course of a day. And uh, with techniques like request, ba- uh, request batching and also request hedging, we've even managed to sustain uh, five nines and peaks of six nines in, in, in some days. So yeah, we, we added a lot to make it possible to be really reliable and performant. And we will continue to do more work in this sense
0: that's it's great like hitting the again five, consistently hitting those five nines on the thirty millisecond p99s is probably hard and takes a bunch of work. so good, good job. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so one of the things we've been talking about is like the importance of this feature working, uh, and also not just from a reliability perspective, but also like w- when you make changes from a security and compliance perspective, you want to make sure that what you're doing works. Um, how do you uh, make changes to policies and how do you make changes to the to the authorization service? what, what things do you do that might be particular to to these components?
1: Um, yeah, it's a good question. So I think
0: authorization like you
1: said is it's so critical to get it right because if you don't get it right, it's not just a bug but it's potentially a security vulnerability. Um, so some things that we'd use, um, both in the authorization service and in the monolith, we rely on uh, so- what we call science or scientists. It's actually open source, but the idea is that uh, we can uh, run an experiment to compare the correctness and the performance of like a control co- code path or query or any anything that can be executed and a candidate. So if we're trying to make a change, we can introduce the new the update or the the new code as the candidate and and run an experiment to compare that against the control. So this, we can do this before we roll out the change and to give us a high level of confidence in terms of the correctness. So for a policy, for example, we wanna ensure that an attribute, a, a new version of an attribute is returning the same result as an old version of the attribute or the whole evaluation of a policy is returning approve or deny for this, a, a single request in the same way as the old one. Um, so we can use science for this. We can also, we also have implemented policy versioning. So you can create a new version of, of a policy uh, with the same, same matching attributes and um, either target the new version explicitly from the client or you can have both versions match and then you know, use that to safely roll out a change. Um, so yeah, yeah, these are some these are some tools that.
0: Oh no, we lost. Brianna. Yeah, I, I think I think we lost Brianna again. Uh, so a, a couple of notes there are. Uh, I think the the library uh, Brianna mentioned is. So uh, GitHub scientists, there, there's a very really good blog post in, for listeners out there from Zach Holman, who worked at GitHub. Uh, it's titled uh, Move Fast and Break Nothing. And there uh, he explains kind of like how GitHub used this library. This is from uh, back in 2014, but uh, it seems a lot of those concepts are there. And, and there's also a, a great post from Cindy Sridhar uh, talking about like, testing in production the safe way. Uh, and she also talks about this kind of like shadow Deploy model, and, and it seems kind of like this is the, the technique that you are using. But at least for the general changes, and then like the policy versioning gives you kind of like both history and the ability to do sort of green blue deployments for for routing traffic at the policy level. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. Like we can do both science scienceing on the client side, you know, using this library. But the policy language also has baked uh, in into the language, uh, so you can basically science. Uh, portions of the rules of the policy. And yeah, I think we do, we do extensive use of, of science uh, at GitHub and, other, um, and even more of your research team, I, I would say. So we are really into making uh, data-driven decisions you know, for the correctness and performance. And, and yeah, and then on the policy side, when it comes to changing it, we, we do policy versioning. Also both, you know, I think in the client side, we also rely a lot on feature flags, which is a really common technique for, you know, slowly like gradually rolling out things. So we can actually, we always start rolling things out just to staff uh, members in the like hubbers. So we can actually, we, 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 we try out our own functionality first. Uh, and so if it makes sense, then we start rolling it out to bring it out to the rest of the world.
0: No, that makes sense. Uh, who 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 can approve policy changes? Is, is, that, is that the developer on the team, the author? How, how does it work?
2: Yeah, we don't have a strong uh, you know policy in place. Uh, to like who can change uh, the, the policies so basically each individual team is owner of their own policies uh, but the cool thing of the centralized thing is that if we want to introduce more you know more uh, more processes into the into the how how like what does it mean to change a policy uh, we can actually do it so that's kind of like one of also like the design choices of the official service making, being able to introduce these kind of compliance rules and auditability uh, when things like in in terms of like uh, when the policies evolve
0: makes sense. Uh, Brianna, do do we have you back? Yes, okay, I, I great.
1: switched headsets, so hopefully that's, this one will stay connected.
0: That's okay. Uh, so kind of like to to wrap up, one of the things I I, I usually ask uh, guests is. Like, what are your key learnings from working on this team? So, like, just maybe take turns. But I'd love to kind of, like, hear your main takeaways uh, based on your experience working on platform authorization at GitHub.
1: Yeah. Um, I think my key learnings and takeaways, I, I feel like there's a couple really big ones. Uh, one of them is that the importance of providing, like, at this, especially at the scale that we're at as a company, providing platform for authorization as opposed to trying to have a single authorization team like responsible for all of the ins and outs of the product and the business logic for all of authorization on the product right like we it's just simply impossible to scale from an organizational perspective with the authorization team being responsible for writing all of the authorization rules for the for the site Uh, so the way that we've handled that is switching from our from thinking of our customer base as external customers to thinking of our customer base as internal customers and, and namely, other feature teams that want to build things on GitHub. So, if we can accelerate them and we can, you know, solve authorization for them or give them the tools to solve it really easily and efficiently for their use case, then that's gonna pay off so much more so than having, if we were trying to do everything for every product and feature on GitHub. Um, like, honestly, I think it took us a while to realize that, maybe too long to realize that. We were kind of in this hybrid bundle for a while of, like, working on user-facing and customer-facing features and also trying to build out this platform and this service and these APIs. And, like, we still do a little bit of both, but we're very much more so focused on the platform at this point. And I think that's the right, the right combination. Um, I think another takeaway for me, and this is my last one, is that, um, like, authorization is in the critical path and it is so like if authorization isn't working, if it's slow, if it's buggy, it like, it's, it has such a big impact. Like it's a, it's a huge blast radius. So taking the time to build, to think about the right architecture and roll things out carefully. And like, it's worth all of that effort. It's not just about getting things out the door because there are so many implications and there's such a huge impact of authorization for, like every request, um, it's just like really worth it to do the due diligence and like make sure the engineering work the engineering work we're doing is sound. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll let Victor answer. I'm I'm curious to hear what he thinks as well.
2: Yeah, I think you summarize it very well. I, I feel the same way. Um, I've learned a lot of things uh, in this team. You know, not only from a technical perspective but at the human level and you know how to how to work with distributed teams, but. I guess, yeah, you, you summarized it very well. I think I am also on board with video, like, you know, empowering developers and, you know, how important it is to have a fantastic developer productivity to accelerate uh, internal teams. Uh, that's really our, our our goal as a team today. And, yeah, it took a so while to figure out, but this is the right path for us. And it's, I think it's something that uh, every organization uh, throughout their uh, life cycle at a certain size they will reach the same conclusions like we need to build this kind of platform we need to stop build, uh, re- reinventing the wheel over and over um so yeah and yeah I guess you know I am reminded on a daily basis how you know nerve-wracking uh, authorization can be even though I've been doing this for a while <laughs> um it's definitely a really challenging space and I guess it's I mean, I ended up doing IAM kind of like by chance. I really liked the team in my previous job that I was doing IAM, so I joined them and then I discovered this space, which was so exciting. Um, so it's a really, really challenging uh, space and I, it's really interesting from my engineering perspective. Uh, I guess uh, something else to add would be, yeah, like other things are so critical, Brianna said it so well, like we really rely on numbers. We make data, data-driven decisions and we're conservative with our like the like how we roll changes and yeah if we if you don't have the numbers to support the change just don't roll it out
0: that's that's great i I really appreciate both of you kind of like giving uh, very detailed answers and and it sounds like you you enjoy what you're doing a lot so it's 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 always good to hear that from from other people in the industry um the the other thing is again i want to thank uh, victor i want to thank brianna a lot uh, for like again their time. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time kind of like via email, also coordinating this. So really appreciate that. Uh, a couple of notes uh, for everyone in the audience: We're wrapping up uh, later, uh, either uh, later today or, or tomorrow. We're going to be publishing the recording in case you missed some part of this. We're going to be making this available in uh, on YouTube uh, the, the audio, so that you can look at that and, and you can also listen into the previous conversations that we've had with. Uh, other people, other industry experts, and also next week, uh, I think it's uh, Wednesday. I, we, we need to publish the the new Twitter card. But next Wednesday, we're going to be talking with uh, David Brozard. He's again, he's been in the IAM industry for a while. He he is an editor of the XACML spec. That's XACML, um, and we're going to be uh, doing uh, a very interesting conversation around like the the history of authorization in software. And, and the state of it in, in 2021. So uh, hopefully you'll, you'll tune in and, and be able to, to listen into that one. Uh, thanks a lot, uh, Victor. Thanks a lot, Brianna. It's again, it's been a pleasure, and I really appreciate you you being part of this.